Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin, charged in the death of George Floyd, the verdict is in. Guilty on all charges. We're asking you for your reaction, and you can comment right now to upraxcess at gmail.com. That's upraxcess at gmail.com. We're going to be talking about this. Uh, We're going to talk about systemic racism, police reform-related topics in the aftermath of this trial. And our guests include Darlene McDonald with the Utah Black Roundtable and a member of the Salt Lake City Commission on Racial Equity and Policing. Darlene McDonald, welcome back to the program. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Appreciate you being on. We bring in as well Representative Sandra Hollins, a Democrat from Salt Lake City, member of the legislature. Thanks for joining the program. Thank you very much. You're you're a little uh, faint, Representative Hollins. Oh, I, I'm sorry. Uh, our producer just had to fade you up a little more. Thank you. And uh, Representative Angela Romero, uh, also Democrat from Salt Lake City, member of the legislature, joins us. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, Representative Hollins, I understand you can uh, be with us maybe 15 minutes-ish, so I'll start with you. Uh, I want to ask each of you, starting with Representative Hollins, is your general reaction to the verdict that came down yesterday? You know, yesterday um, when I heard the verdict was about to be read, I kind of ran out of my office upstairs and turned on the TV and was sitting there with my husband and with my daughter as we read, as they read the verdict. And I can tell you that my initial um, uh, response was surprise. I, I was very surprised, and then I felt relieved that, um, that this verdict came down. Um, and I was surprised because, you know, in the communities of color, we have been through, we have been to this rodeo many, many, many times. And the verdict usually stacks where the where the officer is 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 not prosecuted um, for the death, or or you know, and so for this to happen, it, it was a relief that felt like maybe there is some type of justice out there um, and, that we can look for uh, um, going forward um, um, in this world. Darlene McDonald, what was your general reaction? I can totally relate to the actions that Representative Hollins took because I did something similar. I was working and my husband wasn't home. He was at his office. And when I got the news that the verdict had come in, I immediately called him and said, get home, get home now. It was, I needed to be around my family. And I I just started shaking and crying. The, the pent-up anxiety was was almost overwhelming. Uh, it was just so hard to predict what was going to happen. And, and I echo what Representative Holland said. We have just seen too many times where there was no accountability for the killing of unarmed black men and women. And it felt like maybe this was going to happen again, no matter how optimistic we were. It was just really hard. Representative Romero, uh, your reaction? My reaction is I was in a meeting and I didn't have access to my cell phone. So as soon as I got out of the meeting, I checked my um, my phone and I saw all the texts and I immediately called Representative Hollins because I was, I think, in shock. And I talked to her for a few minutes and um, I had kind of this same sense of relief as as they did, you know, as as mothers of um, you know uh, children who are who are from BIPOC communities, you worry every time your child goes out with their friends. You worry whether your child's going to come home, and so this is very personal for for all of us because of um, our lived experiences and and what we've seen happen to many in our family. Mm. Representative Hollins, you mentioned that you were surprised, um, and you know you could list off, uh, you know, all of the uh, terrible incidents that happened, and then 
uh, you know, from the point of view of, uh, of many in the community, no justice. You know, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, mm-hmm. Tamir Rice, Brianna Taylor, Philando Castile, the list goes on. And the list went on, uh, you know, while the trial went on. Um, yeah. So uh, talk a little bit more about that. That uh, it, I guess this is this is a, a big event, uh, a guilty verdict uh, in a long line of uh, of instance where there weren't guilty verdicts. This, this is this is this is just one step. This is just one step in in a long, long, long line of verdicts that that did not come out in favor of the person who was killed and who was unarmed. Um, I think this case here shifted a lot of people. We witnessed the murder of an unarmed man on national television and on social media. And I think for a lot of people, they saw what a lot of us have been saying and have been experiencing our entire lives um, as communities of color. I grew up in, in Louisiana, and I went to school in Miss started out in school in Mississippi. And I can tell you, I, I grew up in, the, in those environments that were segregated. I grew up in those environments where I knew that there were certain communities I was not allowed to go into, because if I went into those communities, I was going to face pushback from law enforcement. For, for just driving in those communities or, you know, or being, or being in, present in those communities. And so when people witnessed this, they, they saw what we feel. They saw what we talk about. I am, a, I am the wife of a black man. I am the sister. I am the, an aunt of black men, young black men. And it terrifies me that I will get that phone call one day saying that they were killed or they were injured all because of the color of their skin, because they were perceived as a threat. Um, You know, unfortunately, in our communities, we have to train our children differently. You know, I tell my daughters, I have two daughters, and and they're not safe. And I tell them all the time, if you're stopped by police, your job is just to get home. I want you to get home safe. Do whatever you have to do to get home, you know. And when you get home, then we will deal with it from that point. But please just just do whatever you need to do to, to get home. And I taught them how to narrate their every movement so they won't be perceived as a threat. And it's unfortunate that we have to shrink ourselves to not be perceived as a threat in order to in order to live, in order to survive. And I think Mr. Floyd, in seeing this case, you know, it, it's, holding, it's holding him accountable for what happened. There's still a lot of work to be done. It's still a whole lot of work that, that needs to be done in our communities, um, a whole lot of conversation that needs to have. But this is one small step, and, I, and as um, Darlene said, you know, it was just kind of release, release of all that anxiety that has been building up you know, over the last, and it's been over a year, you know, George Floyd was the one that everybody saw. For us, we have, we know of all these other cases that, that don't get pushed out to the forefront, that don't become hashtags, that people, you know, uh, um, those stories of all of those those individuals that I get to hear about, the people who don't want to be in the news media, um, but their stories are, are just as important. I think this brings us just a little bit of relief, but it's still so much, so much more work that needs to be done. Darling McDonald, uh, you said you reached out to your husband, reached out to community. You wanted the family and community around you when the verdict was read. I guess it, uh, well, no matter which way it went, right? Um, talk about your your feelings there and the experiences that that you experience in your family and your community. You know, I, I, I'm just sitting here and I'm, and, and, and I'm listening to the words of, of Representative Hollins, and I can tell you that it could, everything that she has said could come from my mouth. I have black boys who are dark-skinned, who are handsome. They're, they're big boys, and I worry about them. And 
I've had the conversations with them as Representative Hollins. Do what you need to do to just get home, and we'll deal with we'll deal with it later. Just get home. Don't be perceived as a threat. We just need you to survive the encounter. And it's sad that we have to say that, but there is a history within law enforcement that law enforcement did does not and did not and had not and have not policed black and brown communities the same. That is just fact. And when black men are seen, they are seen as the threat, and sometimes black women as well. And the black women don't make it home. I, I think about Sandra Blonde. She did not make it home. And I had a case where I was pulled over and was asked, what was I doing in a particular neighborhood? And I had just went to the grocery store and literally had the grocery store. I mean, had the groceries in the front seat of my car. And I just pointed to the groceries. I was dumbfounded by the question. But I just pointed to the groceries and said, I'm making dinner. And if I had gotten sassy at the officer, would I have made it home from just going to the grocery store? These are conversations, and this is also many, many of us, our realities. So I, I had to have my family close because we couldn't. We couldn't get through that without thinking about George Floyd's family as well. Uh, Representative Romero, you you said your your first call, first impulse was to uh, reach out to Representative Hollins. Uh, it indicates the symbolic weight here, right? And and you wanted to reach out to community to friends. Yeah, I mean, we as uh, the Quad Caucus, which is our ethnic racial minority uh, members of the legislature were um, we kind of had been in touch with each other because we wanted to make sure whatever the verdict was that we issued a statement to our communities and the people we represent because we don't only represent our districts we represent um, BIPOC communities here in Utah and people come to us when um, they feel scared or they feel threatened and so um, but then also Sandra is my seatmate and and our districts are next to each other and she's also a good friend and so I wanted to check in with her to make sure she was okay and actually she calmed me down versus um, you know so that's usually the case with Representative Hollins and she she's just kind of helped center me and um, I thought that was really important because I I had to have these conversations you know with my own family because I'm Mexican American and Native American, and um, I've experienced some of these um, same things with my family and my family members, and and also being afraid when you get pulled over and what's going to happen. And so um, it it just like as they pointed out, a, a sign of relief for all of us. But I just wanted to check in with my son. I had him come to dinner with me, and um, just to make sure he was okay and process that out um, with him. And, um, of course, then he goes back to his friend group. So this is like a, a community um, healing, but it, it, it's still not enough. Um, before we go to break, uh, I want to go back to Representative Hollins, because I know we have to let you go here pretty soon. Uh, we're we're uh, Through the hour, we're going to uh, get into talking about uh, what needs to be done. So let me ask you that now before we have to let you go. What, uh, what are the top things you would like to, to see done? Yes, um, you know, we have been having conversations since last year, um, the Quad Caucus and community members with law enforcement um, around what are the next steps. And so I'm looking forward to continuing that conversation because I can tell you that there are some members of law enforcement who, who, also, who are also concerned about what is happening, and they also want to learn and want to know what can they do also to ensure that um, that they're safe and the community is safe also. And so I'm looking forward to continuing um, that conversation that is already happening and looking forward to um, policy changes that's going to happen 
um, as a result of those continual conversations uh, with law enforcement. Well, we're good. Uh, Representative Sandra Hollins has been with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate you uh, joining us here. Okay. Thank you all for having me. Thank you. Uh, after break, we will continue with Representative Angela Romero and with Darlene McDonald, who's with the Salt Lake City Commission on Racial Equity and Policing, and uh, perhaps with you, if you'd like to get your comment or question in by email to upraccess at gmail.com. We'll have more following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is supported in part by our members and Golden West Insurance Services, dedicated to providing Utah families with customizable options on auto, homeowners, RV, and umbrella policies. Available online or inside any USU Credit Union or Golden West branch from Logan to St. George. Details at usucu.org. And Project Resilience Programming is supported by USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. President Biden had barely taken the oath of office when he was faced with an immigration crisis. Hundreds of families arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border every day. Truth of the matter is, they're coming because of the circumstances in country, in country. We go to the mountains of Guatemala to find out who's coming and why on the next Reveal. Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We are reacting to the verdict in the trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin, charged in the death of George Floyd. The verdict is guilty on all charges. And uh, you can uh, react, uh, send your comment to us by email to upraccess at gmail.com. Upraccess at gmail.com. Uh, we had with us in the first part of the program Representative Sandra Hollins. And uh, remaining with us uh, for the rest of the hour is Representative Angela Romero and Darlene McDonald, who is with the Salt Lake City Commission on Racial Equity in Policing. Again, that email is upraccess at uh, gmail.com. I'd love to get your reaction and uh, and uh, your thoughts about next steps. Uh, so, Darlene McDonald, what do you think this, d- does this verdict m- mean a, a change, a shift? Does, does it indicate that, do you think, uh, overall uh, shifting in attitudes among maybe a majority of Americans? No. <laughs> I, it was a necessary step because we had a similar protest last year where many young people, old people, multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multi-racial coalitions came together last summer to declare Black Lives Matter. And that meant something. We had just saw the lynching of Ahmad Armory in Georgia. And I'm not a runner, but we went to the park to honor him. And I walked the 2.3 miles that he was running the day that he was lynched. And after that came George Floyd. We were a country and a people in a lot of pain, a lot of pain. And watching the murder, the senseless murder of a man, another man, on television, crying out for his mother. And I think that hit home for a lot of people, and especially the mothers, to hear a grown man cry out for his mother, who was dead. And that sent people to the streets who had never been in the streets before to protest and to say for the first time in their lives, Black Lives Matter. And it, saying Black Lives Matter is not saying all lives doesn't matter. And I think for some people, they got it. They got it. Because nobody matters unless black lives matter. Because that is the history of this country. 
from when the first slaves stepped off the ship in 1619. That has been the history of this country. This is what we have been saying since Jim Crow, since slavery, and we, even through Reconstruction. This is what we have been saying, and they got it. So this is a step of accountability when people say there's a difference between whether or not this was justice or whether or not this was accountability. This was justice for the Floyd family because they were able to get justice for the murder of their sons and brother and uncle and father for his daughter. But for the rest of us, it was accountability for the murder of a man and to be able to see him as a man first. So this is the step that we have to continue to take. Step one. Angela Romero, um, same question. Does this verdict indicate a broader change or, or no, do you think? It makes me optimistic, but um, again, like um, Darlene and Representative Hollins had mentioned, when when I heard the verdict, I for for me, I was like, "Is this real? Is this really happening? Are we really going to see this change, or are we going to see pushback? Are we going to see people be complacent, saying, well, you you got the verdict,' um, so let's let's just you know move forward and and not talk about police reform and and policing and and, and communities of color and systemic racism, and all the things that um, are at the heart of our country. A lot of people don't want to tie those all together, but you can't talk about police reform without talking about systemic racism. And it's very difficult for people at times to to see um, how the, the foundation of what we call this country, because my family was here before this was the United States of America in these territories where we worked, Utah, New Mexico, so this is nothing new for, for me. And so when we're talking about police reform, we also have to look at systemic racism and how it's played a role in, in how our country's evolved today. And I want to get into systemic racism. We'll do that in just a moment. Uh, I want to read, uh, because you said something there, Representative Romero, um, and uh, this might apply here. This is the quote from uh, Senator Mitt Romney, of course, Senator from Utah. Uh, reacting. He says, I have trust in our justice system and the great institutions that have always formed the basis of our society. Obviously, pleased that the temperature will be hopefully be brought down a bit. Um, so I'll start with Representative Romero on this one. Temperature brought down a bit. Um, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I'm guessing you're going to tell me that's probably not sufficient. No, that that's definitely not enough. We want, um, I'm, I'm looking at, um, we talk about the United States of America. We talk. People come here because they they feel like this is the perfect place to live. And then the reality hits them when they look at what's happened to um, people who have um, lived in these countries. What in, in the United States of America, whether they wanted to, um, whether it was through slavery, whether it's through other means, and they realize that dreams crushed. And so, our judicial system, yeah, it's it's meant to. To be fair, but is it truly fair? Because we continue to have seen um, black men murdered by law enforcement, brown men murdered by law enforcement. So this is a first step. But should the temperature go down? No, we we need to hold me and other elected officials accountable to make sure we have laws to make sure that we are protecting all members of this country. Darla McDonald, I want to read a, a quote. This is a. a an op-ed piece uh, by Stephen Collinson at, in, at CNN. He says, The verdict will not bring Floyd back from an unnecessary death, nor will it erase the millions of injustices faced by black Americans not recorded on cell phone video or the black community's dread during encounters with the police. And he goes on to say, Proof came in police shootings and harassment of black Americans as the trial went on. Um, so this idea that uh, is that going to continue to be the case, um, that the white America or America that's not uh, people of color will see in, in bold, see these uh, incidents if they're captured on uh, video, but maybe ignore them if they're not? Well, we have to remember that George Floyd's death was not the only one that was captured on video. 
Rodney King was also captured on video. And we know how that ended. We uh, we saw many. There was um, Laquan McDonald out of Chicago that was also captured on video. So there's already some pushback um, from many very, very conservative um, sites that protesting and speaking out against the guilty verdict. There has been some pushback even that President Biden had weighed in on it as well. So it, it has already began. So not everyone view what happened yesterday in a positive light because of what you're going to speak about next, systemic racism, especially as it relates to systemic racism within all of our institutions, that includes law enforcement. But this is it's still necessary. And white America, or even black Americans who, who look at this and didn't see it as a problem and saw George Floyd as the person perpetrating and responsible for his own death, and there are many people who've, who's who view that today, that Joyce Floyd is responsible for causing his own death. This, we're not, there's some minds and hearts and minds we're not going to be able to change. So we have to be able to at least, at the very least, see the humanity in everyone and also see that we have some reform that is necessary within law enforcement so that law enforcement can look the same for everyone and feel the same for everyone. I shouldn't have to clam up and get high anxiety if I have a police car behind me. It shouldn't result in high anxiety, and it certainly shouldn't result in a possible death sentence because I have a headlight out or my tags have expired. It shouldn't be a death sentence. Even if I wasn't perfect, say I wasn't a perfect human being and I forgot to switch on my turning signal or my registration had expired or I ran a red light. No one got hurt, but I ran a red light. That still is not a capital punishment. It's not a capital punishment. I should be able to go home to my family with a ticket or a warning or maybe even just have my day in court so that I am judged by members of my peers. And that incident is not my death sentence. Let's jump into this discussion of systemic racism. I'll start with Representative Romero. Um, You hear the argument that uh, this is not systemic racism, this is a few bad apples or insufficient training. Uh, What say you? Well, you know, people... We'll, we'll say that. And, you know, I've even heard conversations um, uh, amongst people who I, I thought would get systemic racism and they don't. Because when you talk about systemic racism, it challenges your own privileges. And I always like to tell people I have privileges myself because I'm, um, I'm an elected official and I have access to things that other people don't. So when we talk about systemic racism, we're not telling people they're racist. We're talking about what happened and uh, and how this country was built. We, you know, people were brought over as slaves. Um, many of my family members were put on reservations. There, there's this, this history, and we need to know what that history is and how has that benefited others over other groups of individuals. Does that mean I'm calling everyone a racist? No. But does that mean we all have to do some self-reflection? Yes. And we all have biases. And we all have stereotypes. And we all um, have prejudice. And all of us do that, even people of color. And so there, there are ways in which we have to, have to dismantle those, those biases, those prejudices, those stereotypes. And we all have to work on ourselves day to day. So this isn't when we're talking about systemic racism and we're talking about institutional structures and power dynamics. We're also talking about individuals within those power dynamics in order to change things. Uh, there are a lot of elected officials who like to tout 
that they're going to um, provide equity. But then when you look at who surrounds them in their, their top their top aid areas, you really don't see communities of color. So um, this is going to be an ongoing conversation. It's not going to end overnight, but um, p- policing does have ties to to um, racism and the foundations of policing. And, you know, I give um, um, the DPS um, credit when we were talking over the summer about with um, community advocates, with um, civic organizations and with law enforcement. And we had all, everyone from law enforcement, from DPS to local law enforcement. And, and they, we talked about um, systemic racism and how it tied into policing. And people were there to understand and to learn. Did all of us agree on that? No, but we were actually having the conversations. And so we have to start the conversations. And I appreciate this current administration our Governor Cox and, and for um, starting those conversations and, and taking some pushback for it. But um, we have a long way to go, but policing is, is one area in which um, we see systemic racism around. And, and, and it doesn't matter if somebody's a person of color who's in law enforcement. When we watch on TV and we see all these stereotypes, we have these biases. So we have to make sure that we're properly training people, but we're also um, changing how who who um, is leaders within our institutions, so that everyone um, can see someone who looks like them and is connected to them. Darling McDonald, when we talk about systemic racism, uh, you know, can we narrow in on police, or do we have to address society, um, you know, in general? Ask that question one more time. Uh, so, uh, you, you know, some would say, okay, there there is systemic racism, so let's address it specifically within the police. Others would say, well, it's a societal problem, right? You, you got to address address both together. Yes, it is a societal problem, but when we're talking about the issue that brought us here today, we're talking about systemic racism within law enforcement. And I think that what is very important, and I wish that everyone who decides, when I grow up, I'm going to become a police officer. And there are many, many, many young people who say, I want to become a police officer. I want to serve my community. And I applaud them in that, because we do need really good police officers um, in this country. But they must, they must, they must, and I, and I think it should be required for every police department around this country, understand the history of policing in this country and how that system came out of slavery and is rooted at the very root of that was racism. That must be understood. It must be understood. Because if you don't understand that, then you will never understand why a black man is more likely to be shot and killed by a police officer or put in jail or used excessive force or seen as the threat. If you don't understand that, then you don't understand why more black people are pulled over and have more interactions with law enforcement. And their views of law enforcement is very, very different from our white peers or colleagues or neighbors, how they view law enforcement. And they will come away with a very different experience from their interaction with law enforcement. I think it should be required that they get a history lesson on law enforcement in this country. No. I'm not going to say no one is saying that get rid of the police. I am not against the police. I am not one of the people that says defund the police. That is not me. There are people who say that I am not one of those people. Law enforcement is necessary, but we must have a relationship with law enforcement that is at least rooted in respect and honesty about the truth of, of law enforcement, that's where we must go to. So there is systemic racism there, and we have to teach it 
and understand how we can move forward and not keep bringing the past, bringing forward what we had experienced in the past. We'll take another break when we come back. Let's get into um, actions. I know Representative Romero ran a couple of bills on police reform this last session. Um, and, of course, Darling McDonald is on the Salt Lake City Commission on Racial Equity in Policing. And uh, they're moving forward with work. Um, and uh, we can talk about the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, which has passed the House on a national basis. It's uh, in the Senate right now. We'll have more following this break. This week on This American Life, a Republican on a mission to convince fellow Republicans, Trump supporters, to get the COVID vaccine. He kind of has his work cut out for him. When I say COVID-19 vaccine, what do you think of first? Patrick. Rush. Diane from Ohio. Unproven. Michael from Oklahoma. Don't hold my freedom hostage. This week. Saturday morning at 10 here on Utah Public Radio. Hey, it's Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. This week, it's food without borders. From the restaurants feeding the refugees living in Greece, to the surprising history of bagels, to the delicious Arab flavors that transcend regions. It's all coming up on The Splendid Table. Sunday at noon here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are uh, discussing uh, systemic racism, police reform, related topics in the aftermath of the uh, trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin charged in the death of George Floyd. The verdict is guilty on all charges. Uh, And uh, we spoke earlier in the program with Representative Sandra Hollins. With us right now are Representative uh, Angela Romero and Darlene McDonald, who is a member of the Salt Lake City Commission on Racial Equity in policing. Let me just read a description of the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, which passed the House uh, generally on a party line vote. It's at the Senate right now. Proponents uh, say that it would end racial and religious profiling. It would ban chokeholds on suspects. It would eliminate no-knock warrants on drugs cases. It would make it easier to prosecute defending police officers and would overhaul police training to build trust in communities in which officers uh, serve. Darlene McDonald, uh, what's your reaction to the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act? Do you support this? I, I support it. I support it 100%. I believe that something needs to be done on a federal level. I, I understand that we have many states' rights representatives in Congress who does not agree with that. But it takes me back to... 1965 and 1964, and also 1861, that when you leave it up to the states, the justice may not come. It wasn't until there was federal action to abolish slavery by Abraham Lincoln that we were able to abolish slavery. It, it did not happen at the state, state level. Same way with 18, I'm sorry, 1964, the Civil Rights Act signed into law by Lyndon B. Johnson. At that time, we had Jim Crow laws um, in the South, Southern states. It took federal action to be able to, for even me to share a space with many of my white peers. So I, I support federal action on policing, at least as it comes to something as simple as banning chokeholds and some of the other atrocities, being able to have more accountability that if an officer does something wrong, he is held accountable for it, that is beyond the training. We understand that there is and there are Cases, cases where it is necessary for an officer to use some type of force and they receive training for that. I also encourage more training on mental health, and this is where we can get into the funding about critical incident training and, and excuse me, 
<clears throat> and police departments having more um, access to mental health professionals that can also assist, not necessarily go on calls, but maybe not all the calls are routed to the police department to handle. That is where the funding comes comes in at. So I, I agree with, with that 100%. I, I believe it must be done at a federal level. Uh, Representative Romero, uh, your general reaction to this uh, bill, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, and uh, what about this uh, point that Darlene McDonald brought up? And I, I am seeing this from some Republicans uh, on the national level uh, saying that we we should not, you know, federalize um, policing. We should leave that to local areas. I, I agree with um, Darlene, and I think she was very articulate on and why she supported it and why I was supported as well, um, just because of the, the history here in in our country and, and the way um, black and brown um, individuals have been, um, have had exp- lived experiences with law enforcement. And so I, I agree um, something has to be done at a federal level because that's where we see a lot of changes because there are people who are resistant to to change. And when you look at Utah and you look at some of our laws and you look at some of our gun laws, um, you know, and I do have some colleagues that are thinking about ways in which they can not have to abide, to abide by federal law. So um, that's concerning for me. And, you know, that's their choice to do that. But that's my choice to speak out against it as well. And so I, I there's a reason why we had a, a federal government and there's a reason why we have to do structural reform when it comes to policing. So uh, I want to get into some uh, some more specific measures on a local level. Start with this with uh, Representative Romero. Uh, you ran a couple of bills, I believe, this last legislative session. Tell us about those. Um, so over the summer, myself, Representative Hollins, and other uh, members of the legislature, and this was bipartisan, met with um, the Department of Public Safety and a variety of civic organizations and, and, and community advocates. And we came up with three bills that I ran. Um, it started off with Representative Hollins running the no knee on the neck. And we ran that during the special session because we wanted to say, after the murder of George Floyd, George Floyd we wanted to say something. We wanted to send a message to our communities that, um, that we heard them. And I, we, we made sure that it was Representative Hollins that was leading those efforts. And then I ran legislation this last session. Um, law enforcement is record, required to do 40 hours of, of um, training every year. So, there, I, I mean, I wish it was a little bit more. But out of those 40 hours, I mandated that 16 of those hours be dedicated to de-escalation and mental health intervention um, as part of their training. Would I like to see that expanded? Yes. And I know POST has um, added a lot of training for um, people who are certified certifying to be peace officers. I also ran legislation to um, have a use of force, um, mandate use of force um, data collection. Um, we have a, a database that can do that, but um, we didn't mandate it. And so I, I was able to do that. So that can help us collect the data. So we're ensuring that we're training people properly. The, the last bill I ran on police reform was weapon pointing. And so anytime a peace officer points a weapon or a taser at someone, it has to be documented so we can use that data to kind of help with training. So for me, my most of my legislation was there and, and holding for more for accountability, but also to help our um, law enforcement agencies to help our peace officers, peace officers with training. Because for, for me, that that is a huge piece of it. And um, we have to, of course, change some systems, but we also have to provide adequate training for our, our peace officers. And I'm like Dar- Darlene, I don't believe in um, defunding the police. I, I feel like we have to do some restructuring, but there there is a need for peace officers. Darlene McDonald, you earlier mentioned uh, more funding for uh, adding mental health professionals to help. Are there other measures, a couple of measures that uh, you might mention that would be uh, helpful that you hope uh, can, can get uh, enacted? I, I think that that's a big piece of it. I, I think when I, first of all, let me, let me, let me just say how, how honored I am to be able to share this space. 
with Representative Romero and previously Representative Hollins. I appreciate everything that they are doing and have done on the Hill. I appreciate the representation within their their community, but also I feel like their representation spill over into all communities. So I just want to at least acknowledge that I, I'm honored to share this space with them. I think that we we, we have to be able to, to have the accountability within the police department, but mental health is a big, big, big piece of that. And there isn't enough funding for really for mental health and addressing mental health. When we think about the homeless um, crisis, not everyone who is who is unsheltered has a mental health case, but many do, and they end up in the system. We don't want to turn our jails and prisons into mental health facilities, but that's exactly what they have been turned into. Law enforcement are not mental health professionals. They are law enforcement. They should not be trained mental health professionals, but they should be trained to be able to recognize when a case is a mental health situation and should and could benefit from having someone on the scene that specializes in mental health cases where they could look at a situation and determine if that person just may need some medication. Like, we can get this person medication. This person doesn't need a bullet, and they certainly may not even need to be tased. They may, not, they may need to be restrained in some way until they get the proper medication that they need so that they can be productive members of society. We have to uh, we have to address mental health care. We have to, and that went south, I believe, started in the '80s when we got rid of many mental health facilities, and the funding and the money put into mental health care deteriorated. We have to get that back. We also then have to address some of the the things that are, that cause people to even become unsheltered, like. Let's address economic situations. Let's address housing and affordability of housing. There are so many things that come into play here that increases interaction with law enforcement that can be prevented if we addressed it on a societal level by addressing mental health, by addressing affordable housing employment as well, and making sure that people have the resources that they need to be able to be productive members of society. Well, we uh, are out of time with the conversation. We'll leave it there at Good Productive Conversation. We appreciate uh, our guests, uh, Darlene McDonald with the Utah Black Roundtable, a member of the Salt Lake City Commission on Racial Equity and Policing. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And Representative uh, Angela Romero, Democrat from Salt Lake City, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. And we appreciate uh, Representative Sandra Hollins, uh, who joined us earlier. And thank you for listening. Uh, Just mentioned before we go to Beehive Archive, which is our regular uh, way we end the program on Wednesdays, uh, we are going to have a regular Earth Day show uh, tomorrow. Uh, Several years ago, we started a tradition. We spend Earth Day with... Uh, writer and photographer Stephen Trimble will do the same. And uh, then we'll bring on with him Terry Martin with the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance and Jesse Prentice Dunn with the Center for Western Priorities. And we're going to be talking about the 30 by 30 vision. This is being articulated by the Biden administration. They would like to protect 30% of U.S. lands and ocean territories by 2030. Uh, We'll talk about that and uh, related topics. That's tomorrow. And we hope you'll join us then. Beehive Archive is next. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. The evil queen gave Snow White a poisonous apple that set her into a magical deep sleep. But in Tooele County, a mining company used runoff water polluted with heavy metals to grow their toxic orchards. Learn more after this. 
I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. In 1933, a Tooele mining company called the Bullion Coalition gave away 700 bushels of their famous apples to low-income families. But the story of how a mining company came to own a commercial orchard actually began much earlier, with the creation of one of Utah's largest mine drainage tunnels. After decades of mining in the Ochre Mountains, Tooele mines started to shut down in the early 1900s because vast reservoirs of underground water blocked access to new ore deposits. The Honorine Tunnel was constructed in 1903 in an attempt to revive mining operations. It was 7 feet wide, 9 feet high, and 4,000 feet deep. A flume that ran below the car track allowed up to 2,000 gallons of water per minute to flow downhill from an underground reservoir. With the groundwater drained, mining operations continued, and the Bullion Coalition Company purchased the Honorine and all surrounding mines. The company's founders, Charles L. Crockwell and B.F. Bauer, helped establish an orchard of fruit trees at the base of the mine in order to make use of the runoff water and retain rights to it. This water from deep in the Ochre Mountains made the Tooele Bauer Orchard the largest in Utah, and the only one owned by a mine. At its peak, the orchard covered 175 acres and grew 19,000 fruit trees, mostly apple, but also peach and apricot. The arsenic, lead, and other heavy metals found naturally in the mine's reservoir tainted the water used to irrigate the orchard and likely poisoned the fruit. This was probably unknown at the time, since the orchard's metalliferous fruit was packed and shipped to most of the large cities in the United States. In the end, the orchard was abandoned as water was increasingly diverted for ore smelting operations instead. The industries of ore production and fruit growing in Utah may never again be paired in such a way, and that's probably for the best. Find sources in past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. Make an appointment with Public Radio's favorite family doc on the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health. It'll be a jam-packed hour on healthy living, including this recipe for... Miso Mushroom Stir Fry. We always have a great time, so will you, on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRX. Sunday afternoon at 1 here on Utah Public Radio. service of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSUFM Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, Moab, KUST Price, KCEU, and streaming online at upr.org. I'm David Kaub, and I listen to Utah Public Radio in Germany using the UPR app. Mm-hmm. 